Please join me in prayer as we look to God's word for <clears throat> instruction in holiness, guidance in following him, and uh, especially in today's sermon, uh, what it means to go through a time of suffering. Lord, be with us in this day and in this season, and be with us as we look to your word. May your Holy Spirit depend upon, descend upon us and give us insight into uh, this word from Luke, the gospel writer, chapter 24. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> it took me a long time to figure this out, but my wife doesn't like surprises. <laughs> She's the planner, and I'm the improviser. I would announce that I was going to take her somewhere, but I refused to tell her where, thinking this was very fun. She would ask and ask about it, uh, and then eventually I realized that not only was I annoying her, but I was also making things much harder than they needed to be. So now I just tell her the plan up front, and she's much happier, as long as I remember to tell her. And then also, uh, this is the first she's hearing about the fact that she's going to be an illustration in today's sermon. So I have some learning yet to do. So what kind of person are you? Are you the kind of person who likes surprises? Or would you rather know what's going to happen up front? In today's passage, we're going to hear about a couple people who got quite a surprise. Maybe even the surprise of their lives. So Luke chapter 24, beginning at verse 13. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were all talking with each other about these things that had happened. Now, I'll pause here and just say, this was super common. This was like a way of life for them. When they went somewhere, particularly a long-distance travel, it wasn't like today when we jump in our cars and there are 500 of us going in the same direction and nobody talks to each other, right? We just flip on the radio or or you maybe talk on our cell phone to one person. But, you know, if you had a large group of people and you're not isolated by vehicle... You're all going in the same direction. This was just the way of life, was that they would talk together and say, hey, you know, did you hear about that thing? Yep, sure did. And uh, they didn't have radios, they didn't have cell phones, and they didn't even have books to take in the car with them to read. So while they were walking, oh, sorry, while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, What is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. So they stopped walking. Like, this question stopped them in their tracks. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened here in these days? And if you were watching like an 80s sitcom, this is where the laugh track would kick in. Because I think there's a lot of things in the Gospels that are meant to be kind of jokes. They're supposed to be funny. And, you know, just imagine if uh, in the the 80s sitcom, they're they're sitting there saying to the main character, Do you not even know what happened to the main character? And everybody would laugh. And, you know, he's not in on it, but everybody else who's watching does. So Luke writes that into the story. We're all reading along, and and they're going to ask Jesus, Did you not hear what happened to Jesus? Laugh, laugh, laugh. And Jesus says to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before the people, 
and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. That word hope is significant. They had hope. What's the opposite of hope? What do they have now? Hope is lost. They're walking down this road thinking, going from thinking, this is our salvation to our salvation is lost. It's gone. All of it is lost. What do we have left? Nothing. It's like pushing reset. We're going back to the beginning and and we have to think to ourselves, oh, now we're back to thinking, oh, when will the Messiah come? We thought thought he had come. We were ready to celebrate. But he's gone. It it didn't happen. Nothing nothing happened. And that's that's frustrating and, and just crushes their hope. Yes, and besides all this, he says, it is now the third day since these things have happened. Moreover, some women in our, of our company amazed us. And they were at the tomb early in the morning. And when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who had said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, saying, but him we did not see. And Jesus said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that, the promise, all that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary that the Christ would suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted, them, interpreted to them in all the scriptures all the things concerning himself. And so they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he was going further, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day will now be, is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. He took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it. And it was in that action, it was in that reenaction of the significant event of what had happened the previous Thursday evening at their Passover celebration. It was in that moment that their eyes were opened and they recognized him. And then he vanished from their sight. And they said to each other, Did our hearts not burn within us when he talked to us on the road while he opened the scriptures? And they rose that same hour. They didn't, it was night, it was evening, remember? They're like, we're making the midnight trek back to Jerusalem. Look, just, we got to go. We got to go. We got to tell people. So they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the 11 and those who were there with them gathered together, saying, the Lord has risen indeed. He has appeared to Simon. And then they told them what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Does Jesus' reaction to their struggling with all of this seem odd to you? Does it seem a bit harsh? You know, they're like, man, we just don't understand. And Jesus' reaction is not exactly what you would call gentle. He's like, oh, you foolish people. Don't you know that this is what's supposed to happen? You, sh- you should have known that this... W-. And, you know, we as the readers are thinking, should have known what? How are we supposed to... How is anybody supposed to have known that this is what was going to happen? Whenever Jesus speaks like this, whenever he speaks in the Gospels with that kind of sharp-edged tone, he's really trying to break right through all of your assumptions and shatter whatever walls are in the way and get right to something. He's trying to get, put something right in your face. 
What is it in this case? What is he trying to catch his hearers' attention for them to, to hear in this moment? Those, those people walking with him on the road were supposed to hear. You should have known that this was going to happen. And we can just, I mean, we can, I think we can relate. We should have known? How could anyone have known? Jesus answers that question for them. He interpreted them how all the scriptures, he says, all the scriptures, the whole thing, foretold the things that had happened in Jerusalem over the past week. That week beginning with Palm Sunday, which is coming up here on April 5th, and proceeding through his own death and resurrection. He's, he literally takes the time, the walking trip from Jerusalem, to describe to them, this is how all the scriptures tell you about everything that happened last week. So, so many commentators have said about this conversation Wouldn't you have loved to be there? Wouldn't you have loved to hear Jesus himself explain how all of the scriptures point to Jesus himself? Even more more than that, to, to hear how Jesus explained that the entire Bible foretold the specific events that have by any measure at all changed human history. You wish you could have heard that conversation. But here's the thing. Here's the catch. Jesus' response to those two disciples is that they already should have known this stuff. They didn't need the conversation. In other words, it's right there. Jesus is telling them, hey, you've read the Bible. All the things that have just happened are right there. You should have seen this through the whole thing. So if you've read the Bible before, how does that strike you? If Jesus explained, asked you to explain this all back to him, how would you be able to do it? I don't think I would. But Jesus himself gives the key. He gives the key in verse 26. At that moment, Jesus pairs two things together that should change the shape of how we read the scriptures. In verse 26, the two ideas that he puts together are in fact the way that Jesus himself read the scriptures. How do we know that? Because this is the paradigm that he uses to explain everything about himself. Jesus' paradigm for interpreting the scriptures is to look for this pattern. Do you see it in verse 26? Suffering, then glory. There's a sequence to it. Suffering, and then glory. That is the shape, he says, of the Messiah's ministry. And all of the scriptures are meant to inform our understanding of who Jesus is and what he was doing. First suffering, then glory. By Jesus' words and his own example, that's the shape of things. Suffering, then glory. As one great Mandalorian philosopher put it, this is the way. Is Jesus letting us in on something important here? This is something we've been missing. Let's fish around in the Bible for a minute and see if we can find some examples of what he's talking about. Now, before I start giving examples, I want you to know I have a bunch. And... We could spend an entire sermon on each and every one of these, but you'll be happy to know that I won't do that today, even though we have all the time in the world because everybody's quarantined at home, right? (laughs) But even with the examples that I'm going to list today, we're just scratching the surface. Like, scholars have found, looking at this paradigm, they have found literally hundreds of examples in Scripture about this pattern, the story, the story of suffering and then glory. So let's look at the first one. Jonah, do you remember this very strange and famous story 
Is he the only person who's ever been swallowed by a fish and lived to tell the tale? But the, 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 the shape of Jonah's story is that he had to endure humiliation. And he had to endure three days in the belly of the fish. The place of death and digestion. Before the gospel was proclaimed to Nineveh. And then the people of that great city were saved. Three days in the belly of the fish. And then the salvation of the city. What about Daniel? Daniel's in the lion's den. The story begins with suspicion, subterfuge, betrayal. And Daniel seems headed to certain death. But where does the story end? It ends with his salvation. And the, the name of God being praised in the land of Babylon, of all places. The king of Babylon says, Daniel's God must be real. Because I threw him in a lion pit and he lived. What about Esther? Do you remember the Hebrew woman who became the queen of Assyria? The people of Israel were threatened with death. Threatened with being wiped out. And then because of the intervention of Esther before the throne of the king, they were saved. And not only that, but those who threatened them were destroyed. Back to Daniel again. The three Israelites in the furnace. Did they know that God was going to save them? The text is very clear. They say, you can throw us in this fire and our God can save us. But even if he doesn't, he will be glorified. They didn't know. And how do you think they felt while they were being thrown into the fire? Do you remember how brutal that fire was? Like the guys who threw them into the fire were burned up. Like they didn't even go into the fire. They're chucking these three men into the fire and the fire was so hot that they died. I mean, that's how hot this thing was. And it was only after enduring being thrown into the fire that those three men were saved to the glory of the God of Israel. Again, the, the, the name of, of the God of Israel being proclaimed in the nations. We could skip backward several hundred years. We could talk about David. And David's story, how does, it, how does it begin? How does it end? There are quite a few different points when it comes to uh, his relationship with Saul, with his relationship with uh, Bathsheba, with and there's a, several points in which David's life goes from suffering to glory. What about each and every one of the judges in the book of Judges? How many judges are there? There's a dozen. That's a significant number. Uh, each and every one of them, the story begins with. The people of Israel doing what's right in their own eyes and they're about to suffer the consequences. But God sends the one man, the one man who can save them. And it's only after that one man endures a time of suffering that the people of God then are saved and returned to him. What about the exodus? Slavery, then freedom. Wandering, then the promised land. Joseph, his whole story again and again and again is disappointment. Betrayal, brutality, followed by, and then the Lord brought him up. And it goes through that several. We could talk about Abraham. We could talk about Noah. We could talk about Adam and Eve's fall in Genesis chapter 3. And how all of these things go from suffering to glory. Does it sound kind of like Hebrews 11? That's because Hebrews 11 is about suffering and then glory. The whole arc of Hebrews 11, when it lists all these great and holy and mighty people of God throughout all the ages, they all wanted to see something that they never saw. But they believed, and then God brought them to the thing. 
If you're the kind of person who likes surprises, the last example that I'll use from Scripture is the most surprising. Who is the very first human to receive glory in the Bible? It's Eve. Eve is the first human who is glorified in the Bible. Do you remember Adam's reaction to her when he meets her for the first time? God puts Adam to sleep. He wakes Adam up. There's Eve. And Adam just breaks into song. It's the first song in the Bible. It's the the, the moment the Bible became a musical. But notice that it was only after Adam had undergone the death-like sleep that he was awakened to see his perfect bride, right? Then he starts to sing over her. What makes all of that so, so surprising? This very first example of suffering, then glory, occurs actually before the fall. This, this pattern is established before there was a need for salvation, before there was even such a thing as suffering, before there was even a need for a savior to redeem humanity, we are given a picture of Jesus' sacrifice for his people and his love for them. Okay, we could go on and on, as I said, but hopefully these examples are sufficient to show us that the pattern throughout the Bible is exactly how Jesus describes it. Suffering, then glory. Jesus understood the entire Bible to be testifying to himself. And the whole thing is leading up to his story. And he spent his life living out that pattern in fulfillment of all the scriptures on our behalf. That's what's remarkable about it. So where does that leave us? What are we supposed to do with this pattern of suffering and glory? Jesus himself answered that question. He calls us to follow him. And he describes exactly what it is like to follow him. He says, anyone who comes after me will do so with a cross on his shoulder. Whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come. We are called to take Jesus' own pattern and the pattern that he calls out to us from all of scripture as our own path. This is the roadmap for our lives. So what are we supposed to do in light of Luke 24? We're supposed to keep following Jesus even when it's difficult. And that's hard because what's our instinct when when we experience suffering? We want to get out of this ASAP. We try to shortcut the pattern. We try to avoid it altogether. And that's understandable. Who would want to suffer? There are examples in scripture of that too. People who who backed out on the deal, so to speak. Examples like Solomon, uh, who's the, the, the prince of peace who starts well, but over time he falls away and falls apart. Whoever wants to save his life will lose it. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and yet you lose his soul? We try to skip the suffering, but it still comes around anyway. We can't avoid it. Keep following Jesus even when it's difficult. Eugene Peterson has a great phrase for it. He calls it a long obedience in the same direction. And uh, at some point in, uh, later on, look at the quote on the front of your bulletin and read that. And, and, and notice how he says, hey, there's a, there's a mentality that is common to our age, the mentality of 
consuming, the mentality of quickness, the mentality of as soon as possible, I want to change my circumstances. And he says that's the, uh, that's the, the exact opposite of what the Christian life is like. Here's the quote. Religion in our time has been captured by a tourist mindset. There is a great market for religious experience in our world. There is very little enthusiasm for patient acquisition of virtue. Little inclination to sign up for a long apprenticeship in what earlier generations of Christians called holiness. Christians should be wary of the assumption that anything worthwhile can be acquired at once, quickly and efficiently. What about when we're afraid? We live in a time of fear, right? And it was that way, it was that way even before coronavirus. We lived in a time of fear a week ago, and a month ago, and a year ago. We did. So what about anxiety? Some of us have anxiety so bad that we can barely control it. And again, that's not because of our circumstances. It's not because of the day that I'm having, my, that I'm, I'm experiencing. Sometimes we feel anxious even when there's no reason for it. It's just a thing. It's just a feature of maybe, maybe all of life, but certainly 21st century American life. By showing, by showing us that suffering and then glory is the history of the Bible, of God's people, and of our Savior himself, Jesus is letting us in on a heavenly truth. And that is that everything we fear, every time we experience anxiety, every time we are looking death itself in the face, Jesus wants us to remember that as bad as this might be, and it might be really bad, it's still only temporary. It won't last forever. The only thing that is eternal in and of itself is God himself. So trust him and follow him. Follow him through the temporary threats into his eternal peace. That's, That's what we're called to do in times of fear and times of anxiety. What about failure? What about regret? Maybe you think, well, I've already messed this up. Maybe you feel like you had something great, but you did something you regret, and now it's gone, and you can't get it back. What you're asking in that moment is, is redemption possible? Is redemption possible? I've, okay, Jesus did something for me, and then I kind of crashed it, and I burned it, and I blew it up, and then I stepped on it, and then I, I don't know what. I blew it. So is redemption possible? The story of the Bible answers this for us again and again. Just take one example. Samson. Samson, his his trajectory is glory, then suffering, then glory. I mean, he was the greatest, mightiest man in the history of humanity. Until he wasn't. Until he was again. And when God raised him back up, in his state of blindness, in his state of brokenness, Even unto death, he becomes, again, the Savior of God's people. Ultimately, it's a picture of Christ, but it's also meant to give us hope. Similarly, Peter the Apostle. No one understands this better than you, Peter. You're the rock on which I'm going to build my church. I don't even know that guy. Like, you say his name's Jesus? Is that his name? Like... Ah, I've never heard of them. Like, I'm, I'm new to these parts. <laughs> I don't know what. Um, 
Peter's a massive failure. Jesus, I will die with you. And then he's like scared of the servant girl who's like, hey, you were a, you're one of Jesus's guys. And he's like, no. And then what? Peter's redeemed. He's redeemed. And Jesus makes good on his promise to build the church through Peter. What's operating here, what the main, the main thing is not Peter's failure, it's Jesus' promise. And that's true of all of us. So is redemption possible? Absolutely. The testimony of scripture over and over and over again. David, we could cite out any number of examples. The testimony of scripture is that redemption is always possible. So keep following Jesus even when it's difficult. Does that sound a bit masochistic? Are we supposed to create suffering for ourselves or others? No. This is not a no pain, no gain kind of philosophy. We're not supposed to seek suffering. I mean, we already know there's going to be plenty enough suffering without having to seek it. There's plenty, plenty to go around. But seek Jesus and seek him always. And following him will be worth it. It really will. Maybe that seems far-fetched. Maybe that seems really pie in the sky. You say, yeah, that's great to say, you yeah, keep following Jesus through suffering and don't worry, it'll be worth it. But here's, here's what I want you to do. Do this. I want you to find someone who has walked after Jesus for a long, long time. Even those who have suffered much. And I want you to ask them, was it worth it? And listen to their response. Go and ask the, the saints who have been doing this for a long time. Um, is it worth it? Should I keep going? And hear what, they, hear what their testimony is to you. Hear what Jesus has done for them. I guarantee you that will be, uh, will be encouraging to you. But even in addition to that, Jesus himself put it this way. Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep, for you will laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, and when they exclude you, and revile you, and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day, and leap for joy, Jesus says. For behold, your reward will be great. That's the promise of Jesus himself. It's not my promise. It's not a pie-in-the-sky philosophy. It's not a no pain, no gain. If you build it, they will come. Summon your courage and, and uh, go into battle. It has nothing to do with any of that. You, you have the promise of the one who has endured all suffering and entered into all glory, saying, if you follow after me, your weeping will turn into laughter. Your hunger will be satisfied. Your poverty will become a kingdom. Your reward will be great. So whoever you are, wherever you are, whatever you are going through, that's good news. That's good, good, good news. Keep following Jesus all the way to the end. It will be worth it. And may he pour out his spirit on you and fill you with all hope now and forever. Amen.